You're listening to Clinicians Brief the Podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. Today, I am so excited to have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Julian Guillemin. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's uh, always a pleasure, so I appreciate it. Of course. And so first and foremost, did I get your name right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much Guillaume, but I will answer to almost anything that starts with a G, so. <laughs> Guillaume, got it. I have that experience with my last name, too. People always kind of put accents in funny places, so I try to be sensitive. Thanks for your patience with that. I'm interested to know a little bit more about you. Tell our listeners a little bit more about your history, your background, and, and kind of the passion that's driven you to where you are today. Well, that's, uh, I'm obviously French, so I did my vet school and, and part of my training, including my two internships back home. And then I ended up coming to the States around 15 years ago now, give or take. And so I did my advanced training, my residency in emergency on career care at UC Davis in California. And then after my residency, I came and joined the um, as a faculty member at Ohio State University. And so I've been at Ohio State for 10 years now. And so I'm an associate professor in emergency on career care. So I work uh, both in the, I would say, half of my time in the emergency room and then half of my time in the critical care unit. And so that's kind of what I do on a, on a daily basis. That's pretty amazing. I know Ohio State is doing some amazing programs and and, um, has some amazing things going on up there. So I know you're incredibly busy. So I appreciate you taking the extra time to be with us today. You know, we asked you here to have a conversation a little bit more about some content that was published in Clinician's Brief in April 2019. And the article itself outlines marijuana intoxication as a case study in a pit bull. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We uh, wrote it with one of our emergency clinicians at, uh, at Ohio State, yes. And so this is basically a case study that you saw? Yes, I mean, we saw, uh, we see a, a decent amount of marijuana toxicity here. And so this case is kind of a case that we actually, she saw a few months ago, and then we decided to kind of take it from there and kind of write something about it. Right, I'm glad you did. And the other author on this article was Dr. Megan Stodler. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And she works there at Ohio State with you as well, is that yeah, she's, um, she's one of the emergency clinicians. At, we, we do have a satellite clinic around 20 minutes outside of the main campus in Columbus. And so she works at that satellite clinic who does and do emergencies. And so they've got a 24 emergency service. So she's an emergency veterinarian over there. Okay, that's pretty, that makes sense to me there. And so I love that you guys got the opportunity to write about this because as you mentioned, and, and maybe it's sounds obvious. We're seeing a lot of marijuana toxicities. Would you agree more and more in our clinics across the nation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little bit hard to to see. I don't know if I can say I see more. I think we definitely see quite a bit. We are probably, I mean, I don't know the number of cases that we see, but it's, it's fairly frequent. We are a busy service in the emergency room at, at Ohio State, and so we see a, a decent amount of it. I don't know if I appreciate an increase in the number of cases we see, but we do see a fair share here. So, and in, in just to clarify, what is the state of legality on a state level in Ohio right now? 
You know, I think I do believe that it just changed. So you're going to have to forgive me. I may get that wrong. But I think it is able to be used for medicinal marijuana. And But I don't think it's been approved for recreational marijuana. I think it depends a little bit on the states you're in. So that's my understanding about Ohio. That makes sense. But, you know, I want to I, I ask about the laws because... I wonder if we're seeing more, and and, and again, I appreciate you saying that that you're not sure that there is an increase or a decrease, And and I wonder sometimes on a nationwide level, do we see more toxicities in the hospital with laws changing, or is it not really changing our visits because people are taking ingestion less seriously? Do you think they kind of laugh it off or not think it's as big a deal? The way that I feel about the cases that we see on clinics is that people come in and they usually don't know. They have a disconnect that either the pet ingesting the, the, the marijuana or that the marijuana is actually causing the clinical signs. So, I mean, so... I feel that it's not like, oh, you know, my dog ingested pot, and so I'm just going to go into the vet clinics. Mostly it's, hey, my dog is has got some change in behavior, he's acting weird, then I'm going to present it to the, to the emergency clinics, and then when we talk to them, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, they may have access to, to pot, and that may be causing the clinical signs. And so that's kind of the way I feel about it. They know that there is an exposure or a possibility of exposure, but they sometimes don't recognize that this is the cause of the clinical signs for the dog. Yeah, I've experienced that in emergency myself where people come in very concerned about their dog. And and when we do determine that it is a marijuana toxicity, they are instantly less concerned. And and a lot of times are kind of like, well, how big a deal is this? Do I really need to treat them? And so, you know, I guess that kind of brings me to my next question, which is, is how serious is it? You know, in your article, you mentioned there are other rule outs, there are other illnesses that we can maybe miss if we predetermine this as marijuana toxicity. And actually, how serious is this in general? And what else do we need to be looking for. So, I mean, I think it's a twofold question. So, I mean, I think the classic story that we have about those dogs is that dogs come in or usually young dogs. Uh, they have some type of neurological signs. They may be stumbling. They've got change in conscious level. And so we do look at those patients. And so we establish usually that they've got a neurological disease. And then we go through the scheme. So most of us will just use the kind of the vitamin D scheme. So vascular inflammation, toxins, you know, all those type of things in terms of the differentials. And so on a young dog, I think uh, toxicity, infectious disease, congenital diseases are important to rule out. So we are always talk about most of the time I will take those patients and I will look at them okay well this is my problem this is my differentials this is the diagnostic testing that we're going to have to do and so do we need to do an MRI do we need to do a CSF tap tick tick panels you know looking for infectious disease, looking for structural brain disease, or can we look into toxicity? And then based on that, we can have that discussion with the owner. I think it's easy to do a, a toxicology panel in terms of to rule in or rule out marijuana toxicity, and we can talk a little bit more about the test, and then asking for exposure as well. Most of the time, if I've got a young dog that has exposure to THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the 
principle that creates the toxicity. Then people will say, okay, well, yeah, the dog has an exposure. It is very possible that it got into it. Maybe I don't want to spend $2,000 to do an MRI and do a CSF tap, so we're going to treat the dog for potential THC exposure and then go from there. Okay, that makes sense to me. And, you know, I think it's important for us to remember that there are a lot of other conditions. Like you said, these are neurologic patients from the get-go, and we should be looking at them that way and assessing them from that standpoint. So I appreciate that reminder for everybody out there. You know, I kind of wonder if what your experiences are in a state where recreational marijuana is illegal, and that being the case in most states, as well as it being federally illegal still, do you have a hard time having these conversations with your clients? And, you know, do you have advice for veterinarians when it comes to talking about that? Do you think people hesitate to be transparent? So I think it is, uh, I think I would say it depends. The way that I think about it is, you know, I'm not the cops, I'm not your dad, I don't really care. I'm just your veterinarian and I'm caring for the pet. So I usually approach it very casually with the, the pet owner. You know, we are in a college town, it is a big campus, we are very, very close to campus. So if I want to kind of make a general statement, uh, oftentimes it's kind kind of uh, young adults that are coming in and when being asked, uh, does your pet have or is there a possibility that they have access to, to THC, they usually say yes. The tricky bit would be if it is a different environment then people have access to THC but maybe there are family members that you know they don't want to know and all those type of things. So then you know there are a couple of options. Personally, I just let it out there as an, is it a possibility, and then go from there. And then most people, I can leave them together as a family discussing about the situation. I don't get involved into the kind of those type of dynamics. I just want to care for the pet. And and most of the time, people say, yeah, that's you know that's a possibility that the patient has been accessed to THC. Yeah, I I get the same thing a lot, and you're right. I think the best thing to do if you want transparency from your clients is to be transparent with them and just like you said I'm not the police I'm not your parents I'm not interested in anything but the best outcome for your pet and my patient and so we just want to get to the bottom of this I, I have to say I have heard some really amusing things I feel like I, most often it's the neighbors have my, unless someone threw it over the fence that's what I get the most and I <laughs> anything to myself I don't know if people throw drugs over the fence that often but it's my favorite and I also one time got a um, that the dog had access to a compost pile was the answer when I asked if he had question to THC. So I thought, well, yeah. do you put your drugs in the compost pile? So what are some funny things? Can you just kind of give us a few giggles? Are there, are there any funny stories or funny excuses you've heard? Uh, yeah, I mean, we all we all have have our stories about about THC. I think you know one of the the best one that I have is that it was a few years ago we had a dog presented. It was pretty classic THC intoxication. I was two younger girls coming in, and I asked them two or three times, you know, any possibility for THC exposure, pot, you know, exposure, and then they're like, no, 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 no. I went back, you know, I kind of let some time go went back in the room and you know any THC exposure no 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 and so two or three times we went on I ended up uh, drug testing the dog and he, he came positive and so then I go back in the room and it's like you know like uh, your, your dog tested positive for THC and and they're like oh yeah yeah like oh uh, yeah there is like you know pot in the room you know like you could have access to it and I was like 
I've spent 45 minutes to ask you if they did. And then you kept saying no. And then they looked at me. I was like, well, we, we didn't think you would do that to him. And I was like, of course he did that to him. And so, oh, gosh. Um, we ended up, I, the dog was fine, so I ended up sending him home. And I was in the middle of the lobby, and I probably should have taken them in an exam room. But it was all a bit tricky at that time. And so I kind of went over the discharges with them. And they were all afraid that people were overhear what I was saying about their dog getting, getting into pot. So that was kind of pretty funny. Yeah, it was um, a little bit fun to to get to, to make them sweat a little bit in the in the waiting room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're all a little bit scared that people will overhear things, but uh, uh, but good. it was fine. Yeah, that was that was a good one. That is great. You know, and, and, and it's true. Our clients do kind of give us a little. They think that we're going to be in trouble, but I, I do think again with legislation changing, and if you can be transparent and just say, "Hey, I want to fix your pet," I think for the most part we get to it. Now, just to to pick up on something you did say is, um, in particular, that story that dog was pretty, what you said, quote-unquote, classic signs of marijuana or THC toxicity. Can you just men- just run through those? A lot of us that have seen them know them, but if you haven't seen a marijuana toxicity, I mean, what are they looking for as those classic signs? Yeah, and I think that I always say that you've seen one, you've seen them all in a way. Like, I think they are pretty pathognomonic. The way I think about it is that a patient that has neurological signs with altered mentation that go from, like, super excited to kind of more dull and obtended. And they can, uh, they have an, an inappropriate response to stimuli, you know, when kind of like brusque movements towards them and then kind of stumble and a lot of them will drip urine. They can have changes in their pupil sizes. They can be all a bit hyperthermic as well. So I kind of use those four criterias, kind of changes in mentation from hyper to hypo, dribbling urine, hyperthermia, changes in, in pupil sizes to get my diagnosis suspicion. It has to be acute as well, and then we may have some possible exposure, yes. So, you know, I guess to that point, how serious is marijuana toxicity? Really, I think a lot of people do tend to think, you know, are there recorded deaths in at least canines um, when it comes to marijuana toxicities and THC toxicities? How concerned do we really need to be when we have these patients come in? I think it depends. I mean, there is definitely an LD50. I mean, it's decently high, but uh, you know, patient can die from from THC. And I think the worst that I've seen, it depends to me on the size of the dog as well as the amount ingested. So that's another funny story. Uh, I uh, my worst intoxication was on a Chihuahua, and so. And that dog actually went, the owner of the dog was a professional photographer, and then she went to Colorado to do some professional pictures for a company that sell THC as a recreational drug. Obviously, Colorado has a a lot more access to to THC and marijuana than a lot of other states. And so she was taking pictures for that, that company, and the company gave this this uh, person samples and so that she brought back to Ohio and so they had kind of a very high THC content in those and that little chihuahua got access to one of those bars of pretty concentrated THC and that mm. dog was extremely extremely affected and so I think it it is serious in a way that can create very depressed mentation and and you know, leading to 
respiratory arrest and maybe uh, vomiting and aspiration pneumonia, those type of things. The good thing as well is, and we've done that quite a few times, and I know that other people have done that as well, is that we use intralipids emulsion uh, and intralipid therapy that binds a toxin because THC is very lipophilic. And so we actually gave intralipid to that dog, and, and within minutes, he was much better, much more alert. And this is a dog that we were able to kind of reverse, in a way, some of the mechanisms of, of the toxicity. Overall, I think that's what I would recommend on very severe toxicity or people that just want to make the dog feel better quicker. Oftentimes, I think we just put the, the patient in a quiet environment, and sometimes it can be outpatient treatment. Sometimes people want to keep them hospitalized uh, to make sure that they are feeling better, uh, especially if the if the testing is not concluded. Yeah, and you know, I think you made a good point when you started this. That story is there are a lot more available concentrated forms of THC that is becoming a complication for us, where it used to be in a matter of generally eating a flower, and then it became, well, now we're eating these edibles, and we have chocolate toxicities and, you know, nut toxicities on top of it. Now I feel like we're seeing these concentrated forms of THC being ingested and they're coming in a lot more, you know, intoxicated than they were previously. And that scares me a little bit, as well as the fact that I I love that you brought up the intralipid therapy because I love what we're learning with intralipids and that they are becoming more widely used to overcome these, these cases and that we are treating these cases more seriously. I think we need to be prepared to do so because as these types of substances increase in concentration, I think there is higher risk to our patients. Right. I would agree with that. And I think especially small dogs can be can be decently affected. Yes. I mean, you're absolutely right. Now, um, historically, we always say cats are not small dogs, but that does make me want to ask you about cats. So what's going on with that? Like, I know cats maybe don't have as much tendency to ingest because they just don't like to ingest things they don't like as, as readily, right? They're so picky and they don't come in little triangle shapes yet. But what are we seeing with cats? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I, I, I don't think I can recall a, a specific case that I can pinpoint, say, hey, that's a cat who had THC. The clinical signs should be the same and so of, of dogs, but I, I agree that it's, I think it's way less common that cats will have access to or ingest uh, THC. The one case I did actually see was a cat who had, um, the client was actually making a cannabis but like a butter or a, an oil of some kind in right. their home and the cat actually licked the spoon um oh, so yeah. so was going after the butter and and so um that was you know again a pancreatic concern on top of this toxicity concern and and I learned that it can be a little bit more um it can affect these guys differently and we little heart rates go right down and and it's interesting but I don't think we see as many of them but it'll be interesting more to come maybe that will be your next article for us right yeah, yeah. If, I, <laughs> the, if I see one the I kitty case catch. study <laughs> that be wonderful too. So I, I honestly think we could probably talk about this all day long, but it brings me um, to my kind of final ex- section here where we ask you to keep it brief in three sentences or less. What is your best advice for veterinary professionals in confronting this topic going forward as the legislation and legalization and accessibility continue to spread on the GP level? What can we be doing? I mean, I, th- I think it, uh, oh, three sentences, that would be tough. Um, um, <laughs> it is... Uh, 
to me it's awareness and so knowing what they look like I do recommend to do the urine testing and I, I would like to, to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about the urine test if you guys don't mind but you know so knowing the clinical signs running the test from a legal standpoint I usually say that the legality of reporting what I tell my students is that if you think the pet is in danger you're legally obligated to report those cases. But if it is an accidental toxicity, like any other toxicity, and you don't believe that the pet is in danger, there is no legal implication that I know of that you have to report those cases. And so that's kind of what I recommend on on those on those cases. Th- you know, thank you for that because why I do want to revisit your testing with you. I appreciate you kind of outlining what I think is a hard place for some especially new grads is should I be reporting and and what how am I legally involved here so thank you for kind of providing a little clarification about when it becomes necessary to report and when it just becomes necessary to treat and move on but but talk to us more about urine testing how are you doing this and how can we be doing it in practice yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of kind of controversy about that urine testing, and there are a lot of people talking about, you know, how is THC metabolized? Is it the same as human? People use those urine drug tests that are human-based and human-designed. And I think, to me, the there's still urinary excretion of THC in dogs, and but I think we're asking ourselves the wrong questions when we run those tests. And so the test in humans, the urine test is designed to answer the question, did you get into THC in the past two to three weeks? And so, because the drug's going to be metabolized, it's going to get into your, the urine, stays in the urine for a while, and so this is for a test for chronic drug use. The way that we're using it in veterinary medicine is to answer a totally different question, which is, is my patient high right now? And so, and it takes time for those metabolites to go into the urine to be secreted and then to end up in the urine. So my recommendation always is to the clinicians who take care of those is just to wait. And so I don't get those dogs, triage those dogs, look at those dogs, and run the urine test right away. I usually try to wait at least half an hour, an hour, having that talk to the owners, talking about the differentials, and then maybe half an hour, an hour later, then I will get the urine test and I'll run it. And I think there is no proof, there is no scientific, I cannot prove it, but in a way it maximizes the chances to to be able to catch a positive because the problem is that when you've got false negative, the tests come back negative and then it's like, okay, now what? I've got an increased suspicion, I've got a potential exposure, but my test is negative. So I would wait or I would redo it, you know, a few hours later to see if we can pick up some of those metabolites now that they're in the urine. That's great to know, too, that, you know, if we don't process these, if we don't wait long enough, we may actually get that false negative. And you're right. I mean, that can lead to a lot of unnecessary testing. Are you running urinary testing on dogs regardless of what the owner claims? So if, if they say, yes, they've been exposed, yes, I'm almost positive or 
perhaps I came home and found my dog in my stash. I know it's an ingestion. Are you still running them at that point to establish the levels? It's uh, I don't I think it would be case by case. Uh, I think it's easier to just diagnose it and having a positive diagnosis. I do believe that if there is a potential exposure and very clear clinical signs of THC intoxication, then I may just not run it depending of what the owner wants to do. It's not super expensive, at least in our hospital, so the cost is not too bad. But, you know, I would avoid unnecessary testing if this is the number one rule out. That makes sense. And, and we're all about, you know, saving our clients and our patients anything that they don't need. So it's it's an important point to just touch on and know where we stand and, and make sure we are doing best practices. Uh, we are taking this as serious as we need to, but that we also know where we stand. I think more and more people are encountering these cases and want to handle them with best practices. And uh, your article, I know, is a big hit. And, you know, people want to hear more about this. I really think we could talk about it all day long, but I know you have other work and sick patients to get to. So I won't keep you forever. I do want to say thank you again. If people wanted to reach out for you for more information, is there a place they can reach you? Yes, of course. I mean, I think uh, my email address is is on the OSU website, and so they can contact me through that. So it will be no problem. I'll be happy to answer any questions, you know, regarding THC toxicity. Thank you again so much for being here. And if you haven't already, check out Dr. Guillemin and Dr. Megan Stodler's article in the April 2019 issue of Clinician's Brief on uh, Outline the Marijuana Toxicity of a Pitbull in their case. Thank you again so much for being here with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Tell us what you think about the conversation and the content. Let us know what you think about marijuana toxicities in your practice. What are some of the funny things you've heard clients say and how are you treating them? Thanks again to today's guests for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinician's Brief, the podcast, is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.